Well, good morning, church family. How are we doing this morning? Good, good. I need you guys to join in praying with me uh, that God would move on church families' hearts uh, to help in the kids' wing. <laughs> Holy smokes. I just walked out. There's a lot of you here with a lot of kids today, which is awesome. Praise God. We want to get that 845 service open, but uh, pray about it. That wasn't planned. That's not part of the sermon notes. We'll let that go. All right. We have been, if you're new here, uh, if you're a visitor, which I've seen plenty of faces today that I don't know, uh, our church right now is doing something called the Year of the Bible, where we are going in 2022 through Genesis to Revelation with a reading plan where we're reading scripture throughout the week. Many of our community groups are discussing what they read throughout the week. And then come Sunday morning, we teach and talk about what also we read throughout the week, just to get into the Word, stay in the Word, study the Word, meditate on the Word. Because God works through his word. And so we just finished up our first series in the book of Genesis. And that's where I'll start reading today, actually, in the last chapter. Genesis chapter 50 and verses 22 through 26 says this. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and he saw Joseph, Ephraim's children of the third generation, the children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, who were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you are good. I thank you that you are with us, and you're in us. Lord, I ask today as we get into your word that your Holy Spirit would provide illumination. Help us see truth. Help us understand it. Help us receive it. Help us believe it in a way that changes our hearts and it affects the way that we walk and talk, the way that we live. Let this not just be a, a, a Christian spiritual pep rally or social club, but let this be the people of God coming together to pursue you, the only one who can change us. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we concluded the book of Genesis last week, we saw that Genesis essentially is a book that has the purpose of teaching us the origins of our world, of our universe, the origins of mankind, teaching us how all of us got to be the hot mess that we are today, and how God didn't leave us and abandon us in our hot messedness, but in his good grace, he made a plan, created a plan to redeem back his creation, that this creation that was subjected to futility, Romans tells us, his creation that was subject to sin and death, that he had a plan to buy it back, redeem it, make it new. And we still to this day look forward to that day when he will yet make all things new. And he began this plan with a man named Abraham. He said, I'll choose you. I'll make you a great nation. And then he passes that promise on to his descendants, Abraham to Isaac, Isaac to Jacob. Jacob becomes the man that we know as Israel. Israel has 12 sons that become the 12 tribes of Israel. And as we talked last week about Joseph, how God sovereignly orchestrated things in his life 
through these paths of suffering that led to God's plan where he would redeem or, or preserve, not so much redeem, but preserve life of this chosen people in Egypt as there was a famine. And then Joseph becomes the second most powerful man in the land, forgives his brothers for sailing him into slavery, which would be a hard thing for me to forgive if I'm being honest, forgives his brothers and then uses his power to provide for them, protect them, save them, essentially. And they stay there, and then they're there for hundreds of years. And this is fulfilling what God told, Gen uh, told Abraham in Genesis 15. When one of the times he's reiterating his promises to Abraham, he says, now your descendants are going to be sojourners in a foreign land for 400 years. And they'll be oppressed, they'll be slaves there, but I will redeem them and take them back out of that land and take them into the land that I will show. And so we find ourselves today, as we conclude Genesis, looking at Joseph, how he dies, and all of his brothers. Then we go to Exodus today to open up what is one of the most important books in the Old Testament, one of the most important books in all of Scripture. Exodus lays a foundation for many, many things that we will then see throughout the rest of the Bible. In fact, there's a scholar uh, named R.A. Cole who said this, No book, therefore, will more repay careful study if we wish to understand the central message of the New Testament than this book. The center of the Old Testament and the record of the establishment of the Old Covenant. He would also go on to say this. It would be hard to find a single major topic of Old or New Testament that is not exemplified in the book of Exodus. There are so many things that happen in Exodus that are unfolded then or, or, or expounded on or referred back to throughout the rest of the Old Testament and also in the New Testament. Exodus is a key book for Judaism, of course, but especially also for us today as Christians. And so now we go to Exodus chapter 1, and we see that Genesis closes with the account of Joseph bearing the weight of the covenant promises that had been given to his great-grandfather Abraham. And he makes his family swear, knowing the promise of God is going to come to pass, that they will be led out of Egypt. And he's like, God's going to do this. Swear, swear to me. Um, swear to me that you will take my bones out of Egypt with you when you go to the land that God's going to show us. So we pick up today in Exodus Chapter 1 and verse 1. These are the names of the son of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Jacob also being Israel. Each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died. And all his brothers and all that generation. So it's saying Joseph, all of Joseph's family, and that entire generation at this point of the story has all died. Verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. 
They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. What we see right here at the open of Genesis, or I'm sorry, the open of Exodus, as we close Genesis, focusing on Joseph and his role in the family, and then we get to Exodus and it opens up talking about Joseph and the, the family tree here with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jacob's 12 sons. It says, all of them have died, all of that generation have died. And we see right here the fulfillment or the beginning of the fulfillment of what God told Abraham saying, I'm going to make you a great nation. Right here, Exodus opens showing that that family that was a small little family that grew into be about 70 people now has grown into a massive nation among the people of Egypt. Let's keep reading in verse 8. Because we fast forward right here, what between these verses, uh, 300 years happens. <laughs> so they just skip really 300 years because it's unnecessary for the story. So verse 8 says this, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, meaning he didn't have gratitude in his heart for everything that Joseph did because Egypt wouldn't have existed had Joseph not served the role that he served. So there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Now you might be thinking, wait, if, if Israel is so mighty and has grown so much in number and they want to oppress them and deal shrewdly with them, why, is it, why doesn't the people of Israel just go, no, we'll fight and we'll resist? Well, what we have to understand is in the days of that famine, when people were coming to Egypt to buy grain, it was so bad for so long in those seven years that people sold all of their possessions just to get more grain to stay alive, all the way to selling themselves to Egypt. So that's how the slavery came to be. That's how it began. Didn't matter as much at the beginning because, Pharaoh, or because Joseph was really popular, really well-liked, Pharaoh loved him because obviously he saved their country. And these Israelites, the family of Joseph, were well-liked and welcomed because he saved them. But now we fast forward 300 years, generation after generation after generation, they have forgotten what Joseph did for Egypt. There's a new king, and he's like, oh, snap, it's a lot of Israelites. And if we're not careful, if we don't put them in their place then they're going to rebel against us if any of our enemies want to come and, join, come and make war against us. They're going to join with them, and then they're going to flee. And we need them for our economy. Because if the Israelites are gone, who's going to make all these bricks? These pyramids are pretty big. And these, these statues and all this stuff, they needed the Israelites. So out of fear and also out of concern for their economy, they go, let's oppress them. Let's deal shrewdly with them. Let's make them weak. And that's what happens in those passages. So we'll continue on in verse 11. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. And the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all the kinds of work in the field. And in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. This goes on for 300 years. And then the next parts that we're going to summarize 
Here's, what, here's the deal. I tend to have a, t- I have a tendency, if you haven't noticed, to spend way too much time in the introduction, giving details in the intro, and then I get to the end of the sermon where it's like, there's the meat, and I'm like, oh snap, we're out of time. So I'm trying to make sure that doesn't happen today, and I'm going to paraphrase 80 years worth of stuff, essentially the end of chapter one and all of chapter two. So they're being oppressed, they're being gru- gruesomely um, Uh, oppressed by these Egyptian taskmasters to where they're weak, they're feeble. They are driven every single day. They had quotas of how many bricks they had to make. They were not given very much food so as to keep them weak, only strong enough to make those bricks and then get back home and rest. And so they were keeping them as weak as possible. And then not only is Pharaoh concerned about let's try and keep them weak that way, but he doesn't want them to grow anymore and doesn't want them to have any people who could become warriors. And so he tells the Hebrew midwives, he says, hey, listen, anytime a Hebrew woman gives birth, if it's a girl, you'll let it live. If it's a boy, you'll kill it. But the Hebrew midwives, it says, feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. And so they figured out a way to disobey. Finally, time goes by. Pharaoh goes, hey, how come there's still a whole bunch of Hebrew baby boys? Why aren't you listening to me? And they said, well, these Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They're, they're stout, <laughs> essentially is the modern paraphrase of it. They said, listen, by the time the word gets to us and we get back to them when we've heard they're in labor, they've already had babies. So sorry, Pharaoh. Well, Pharaoh's like, well, fine, I'm going to one-up you one more time. Let's make an edict in the land. Anyone who has a baby boy or has a young boy, it's got to be thrown in the Nile. Just going to massacre those baby boys. And so that's what starts happening. They have to throw their boys in the Nile River. And then in chapter 2, we see it zoom in on this Levite family, this family from the tribe of Levi, who gives birth to a baby boy. And it says they saw he was beautiful. They felt that he was special. And so they hid him for three months. But then the time came where they couldn't hide him anymore. And so the mom takes a basket, seals it up with some elements, basically makes it watertight, puts the boy in the basket, and then puts him in the Nile, and then lets him go in the hands of God. And the little sister is running along the bank watching the basket to see what becomes of it. And lo and behold, the basket floats up to Pharaoh's palace. And Pharaoh's daughter is bathing in the water there. She sees the basket, sees the baby, is moved with compassion and goes, Dad, can I keep it? (laughs) Someday my daughters are going to ask for a cat and Lord help. Of course, he's like, yeah, you can keep it. And the little sister who watched and saw it all came up and said, hey, um, you need someone to nurse that baby, right? Can I take him to a Hebrew mother who can nurse him? And lo and behold, in the sovereignty of God, he gets to come and grow up from his mother. And then when he became old enough, the mother had to turn him back over to Pharaoh's house. Moses grows up in the palace, in the premier empire of the day, the superpower in the land, Pharaoh being the most powerful king and ruler in the land of the day. Moses, the little Hebrew boy, grows up in that house, learning the ways of royalty. He is getting the best education that is available in the world in that day. And he grows up in that house for 40 years. And he learns and he realizes that he's a Hebrew, like these people who are slaves. And one day he goes out to look among them and he sees one of them being beaten by an Egyptian taskmaster. His anger is kindled. He does a look one and two, makes sure no one sees, and kills the dude. 
murders that taskmaster, and then buries his body in the sand. And he thinks he gets away with it. Not too long after that, he sees two Hebrews fighting amongst each other. They're throwing punches, and he tries to break it up, saying, hey, why are you hitting your brother? And then they say to him, well, who are you to rule over us? Are you going to kill us like you did the Egyptian? Oh, snap. It got out. He's aware that people know. Not only do they know, but it got back to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh wants his head. Pharaoh wants to kill Moses for it. So he flees, and he goes out into the wilderness, into an area called Midian, into the Sinai Peninsula, and he meets this guy from his family's lineage that he joins himself to for 40 more years, marries his daughter, and he becomes a shepherd watching over his flocks, and he's tending to this man's flock, being a part of the family, and as far as he knows, this is his life now. 40 years growing up in Egypt, 40 years there, then some fun stuff starts to happen. One day he's out watching the flock and he sees a bush on fire and you're like, okay, big deal, but it's not being consumed. It's not being eaten up by the flames, which is where we find ourselves. In in Exodus now, chapter three, verse one. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and he came to Horeb. That's also what would become Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why this bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take off your sandals off of your feet or take your sandals off of your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. If you're an underliner or a highlighter, underline that phrase, holy or holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face For he was afraid to look at God. Moses is out minding his own business. And as far as he knows, he is in his lot in life. And like any of us, if we were outside and saw a bush on fire that was not being consumed by the flames, we would be like, I'm going to check this out. And he wanders over there, begins getting close to it. God calls out to him, Moses, Moses. And he's, here I am. He says, hang on. Before you come any closer, take your sandals off because this is holy ground. This is the first time in Scripture the word holy appears. Holy is a word that if we get into the study and the root meaning of the word in the general sense, it means set apart, set apart from everything else. Further, it means different, unlike any other. And at the most basic level, it literally means other. More, uh, we'll talk about that more in a little bit, but God is unlike any other in essence. He's unlike any other in time, unlike any other in moral perfection, unlike any other in wisdom, in knowledge, in power, in love, in glory, in wrath, in mercy, in justice, in grace, in power, in forgiveness, in all that he is, in all who God is, he is other. 
Unlike anyone else, unlike anything else, he is other, he is different, he is holy. And because he is holy, where he is, is holy. He tells Moses, take off your sandals, this is holy ground. Meaning this place, because I am here, is unlike other places, and you better take off your shoes. Now, I've lived in Wisconsin for a little over nine years, and moving up here from the south, there was something that was a little peculiar to me. You walk in someone's house, and what do you do? You take off your shoes. Did you guys know they don't do that in the south? Newsflash, they don't. In fact, if you're in the south, and you go in someone's house, and you take off your shoes, they're like, what are you doing, weirdo? When I go visit my family, I by default walk in and take off my shoes because I understand snow and salt and how it tracks through the house. And by default, now I am wired to take my shoes off because I don't want to track the snow and the salt throughout the house. Well, yeah, but it's summer. You don't care. It's just part of who you are now, right? And so when you go down to Texas or Arkansas and you go in a house and you take off your shoes, even the owners of the house are wearing their shoes inside. It's a different world. Now, Here, I got my two little girls, Marley and Joey, who are five and three years old. When we get home, we come inside, and there is a large white shag rug in our living room with gray stripes on it. Why we thought to get white? (laughs) (laughs) We get home, we walk inside, and the girls, all they're thinking about is whatever fun thing they want to do, whether it's Play-Doh or toys or coloring or dressing up like princesses, that's all that's on their mind. We get in there, and they run in, and mom says, whoa, 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 whoa. And they, er. now they've had it enough times where they go, oh, yeah, and they start taking off their shoes. And many times it has been said, take your shoes off. I just cleaned that rug. All the moms are laughing and smiling, and I see lots of nodding heads right now because my wife does not want their dirty shoes making the clean rug dirty. Those shoes have been walking around school and around the playground and in the bathroom at school and all sorts of different places. And the idea of the unclean getting on the clean is not good. This is why God is telling the unclean man, Moses, take off your shoes. This is holy ground. This is other ground. This is unlike ground everywhere else. And it's not just because the place is special. The place is special. Special. The pa- <laughs> Might have to swig some water in a second. The place is special. There we go. Because God is there. It's holy because the holy is there. That place is other. It's different because the other, the different person is there. And this is the first place we see this phrase in Scripture revealing to us something about God. And a thread that we will see throughout Scripture is that God is holy. And you've heard me talk about this a year ago-ish, that if we went to Isaiah chapter 6, where the prophet Isaiah is called into the prophetic ministry, and he has a vision where he's in the holy of holies in heaven, in the throne room of God, where God is sitting on the throne, and the train of his robe fills the temple, and the cherubim are flying around God, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
story, these beings that have six wings, two that are helping them fly, with two they cover their feet, and with two they cover their face in the presence of God because God is so holy that cherubim that are there have to cover their face with wings. Holy, unlike anything else, completely different. And because this God is holy, this people, Israel, that he will call to be his nation, his chosen people. He then tells them later, in the book of Leviticus we'll get to, he tells them, be holy, for I am holy. Saying to them, if you are going to be my people in the world, if you're going to represent me to the nations, you will be other. You will be different than all the other nations. Guys, holiness does not blend in. Doesn't blend in. And this is not just something that is in the Old Testament. Because we could go to Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1 where the Apostle Peter tells Christians the same thing. He calls them into a life of holiness. Meaning a life that looks unlike the lives of everyone else. And he says, be holy. Quoting the Old Testament saying, be holy for I am holy is what is written. And he says, so we've got to live holy. And we try so hard to make Christianity cool. We try so hard to make Christianity be cool and popular and acceptable. And we dumb it down and water it down and dilute it and sugarcoat it and rob the fangs of the gospel, the power of the gospel, whereby we acknowledge there is a holy God who is so unlike any of us that when we have sin, he must judge it in his righteousness. That's bad news for us, guys. That is bad news. That there is a holy God and we are an unholy people is bad news. Thank God, though, that he didn't just leave us there and say, oh, you've botched it. You have to stay away or you'll die. But he made way through his son, Jesus Christ, that an unholy people could be made holy. That a people who are unholy in every function and thought and motive could be cleansed and made holy by the blood of Jesus Christ. That is the good news. That the holy God who says, sin cannot come near me, in his love and grace and mercy says, but I will come to you and dwell amongst you, and not only that, but dwell in you. We take that for granted. We treat that like it's common. And God is saying, Take your sandals off. Now, I'm not suggesting that we start taking our shoes off in church. We might need some foot powder and some air freshener if that's the case. But what I am implying, what I am trying to say is that our lives ought to look way different than the world. It ought to look way different. Guys, we should be made fun of. Oh, you're so holy. Man, I hope, I hope to be. I strive to be. And holy is a term like that today has been like this mocked moral snobbery. Oh, they're so holier than thou. Well, we have a holy God who has invited us near. And if, sandal, if Moses had to take off his sandals, it begs the question, what do we have to take off to come near to the holy God? 
And it's not, there's this painting, this picture, this idea that God tells us you can't do this and you have to abstain from this and you're not allowed to do that and you better stay away from that as if God is just this mean, boring old dude who wants to stop us from having fun. No, we need to recognize those limitations are because he wants us close. But we don't recognize how profound that is. And we like our things. We like our unholy things. Sometimes I wish God would do the burning bush thing again to make us go, whoa. As you think about the New Testament, where the disciples, when they realized, when they had revelation that Jesus wasn't just another man or a good teacher, when they realized that Jesus wasn't just a prophet, but when they recognized that Jesus was God, like when he was in the boat with them and they're freaking out thinking they're going to drown and die because of the storm, and he gets up in the front of the boat and he says, Peace be still. And the storm stops. What do the disciples do? Do they go, teach me to do that. That's pretty awesome. No. They look at each other and they go, who is this man that the wind and the waves obey him? What about the time when they were out fishing? And they hadn't caught anything all day. This is their profession. They're the experts. They know how to catch the fish. Have caught nothing all day. Jesus says, "Mm, one more time, cast your nets out on the other side. They're like, Jesus. We, We do this. Nevertheless, at your word... Dude, come over. Come over. And they start pulling in this mess of fish that's busting their nets and potentially sinking their boats. And they realize that man is God. And they say, get away from me. For I am unclean. Same thing that Isaiah, when he's in the throne room and he sees God, he says, woe is me. For I am a man of unclean lips. Same thing, the Apostle John, who was one of Jesus' best friends, he wrote in his book and called himself the one whom Jesus loved. Very close to Jesus in his inner circle, Peter, James, and John. In the book of Revelation, when Jesus appears to him in his glorified state, he says, I fell on my face like a dead man in the presence of the glorified Jesus Christ. Indescribable, uncontainable, you place the stars in the sky and you know them by name. What are we going to have for lunch? we got the Super Bowl party today. I hope, I hope, do you think the Rams are on the Bengals? I hope, I think it would be cool if Joe Burrow won. That would be pretty cool. But then again, Matt Stafford would be nice for him to get one because he was with the Lions forever. But what are we singing about? <laughs> what are we singing? Um, oh, yeah. You are amazing, God. And we throw out these platitudes that are neutered. Not, not feeling the weight of the holy God who has welcomed us, who has saved us, who has given us his spirit, given us his presence, and we come in with platitudes to offer and insincere words and just checking things off 
not recognizing this is the holy God of the universe who is other. And he says, be holy, for I am holy. Continuing on, verse 7, the Lord said, oh yeah, I had a point in there too. God's holiness is not to be approached casually. There you go. You can write it down if you want. Verse 7, then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land or out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites and the Wisconsinites. I figured all the ites were in there. Verse 9, And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, (laughs) that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But, But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? And bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. He said, but I will be with you. And this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. This is where he comes back and serves. And God gives the Ten Commandments on top of that very mountain. A few things we want to stop and see here. We want to notice, one, our afflictions are seen by a God who cares. What did it say in verse 7? Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people and have heard their cry. I know their sufferings. I have come down to deliver them. We have a good and faithful God who, who knows, who sees our afflictions, who hears our cry, who knows our suffering. And has a plan similarly to redeem us from them within his plan, within his timing. And there are levels of suffering and afflictions that we will be redeemed from or healed from or delivered from in this life. And there are some things that we will be delivered from at the end of this life. And those things belong to the Lord. But the solace, the comfort that we ought to see about the character and nature of God is that he sees. God's not ignorant to what we go through. I love that Jesus said the very number of hairs on our head are numbered. That, who cares about how many hairs, the number that shows us that God knows every detail and is intimately acquainted with everything going on in our lives. God sees, he hears, he knows, and he will deliver Another thing we want to see from this passage is that when God calls, he goes with. Moses gets caught up in what's happening. God's talking to him saying, you're going to go represent me. You're going to go talk to Pharaoh. And he says, who am I that I should go talk to Pharaoh? He's thinking about himself. He's focusing on himself. And God spins it, doesn't answer. God doesn't say to Moses, oh, come on, bud, you can do it. Oh, come on, man. I believe in you. 
Oh, come on, you're good at some things. Come on, you grew up in Pharaoh's house for 40 years. You not understand the inner workings of the kingdom. You understand the way they think. You know what it's like. I know you think you're not a good talker, but you'll be all right. No. It's right that Moses felt inadequate because the adequacy was in who was going to be with him. God didn't answer Moses' concerns about his insufficiencies and his inadequacies and his inappropriateness for being used in this role with saying, yeah, you can do it. He said, but I will be with you. When God calls us, he goes with us. And I think about this as a family, maybe some of you may know them, the Vanessas in Plymouth, this family who's been having their American dream for their whole life, been doing well and could go and live their happy life, but felt God calling them to go and take their family, their kids, and go move to Kyrgyzstan to tell people about Jesus. I felt like God was calling them there. And, and we sit here and think, man, that's dangerous. And it is. But they recognize and they understand. I sat and heard their story from them. They understand that if God's sending them there, that God is going with them. In our lives where we are called into the family of God, all of us have at least that call where we are called into the family of God. We recognize that God, therefore, is with us everywhere we go. This is Hebrews 13, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This is the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit with us, in us, at all times. God is with us. When Moses questions God's selection of Moses, God answers with the promise, but I will be with you. Let's go on, verse 13. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? So what am I going to tell them your name is? Verse 14, God says to Moses, I am who I am. Now, what if you said, what if you came up to me one day and you're like, hey, I just wanted to meet you. I'm, I'm John. And I said to you, I am who I am. <laughs> okay. What's your name? I am who I am. We look at this phrase, God talking to Moses. He says, I am who I am. The Hebrew phrase, ech, yech. It's not a phrase you should say after eating something smelling strong. He says, I am who I am. If you do some study there, you'll learn that it actually literally boils down to, I will be who I will be. Most translators rendered this into, I am that I am, or I am who I am, because the I will be who I will be gives the connotation that he is not yet, that it is future tense. And so that's why it's been re rendered out, I am that I am. God is saying to Moses, listen, bud. You want a name for me? Unfortunately for you, there's not a name that can encapsulate who I am. I am who I am. And then he says, you will say to them, Yahweh, that he is who he will be, or he is who he is, sent me to you. I want to look at something that a, a, a scholar, R.A. Cole, pointed out about this. He said, to the Hebrew, name is shorthand for character. Therefore, to know God's name is to know him as he is. And to call on his name is to appeal to him by his known and revealed nature. To proclaim the name Yahweh is to describe his character. Now, th there's something about this name that we need to feel because we've talked about this God being holy. 
These Israelites, the scribes throughout generations, meaning people who would look at Scripture and rewrite it, keep producing Scripture, they so revered this name that when they wrote it, they took the vowels out and they just wrote Y-H-W-H. Well, for us, what's Y-H-W-H? There's Hebrew letters there. Um, but, and so they did not count it as something that they were worthy of writing or even saying. And so when they would see this name there, they would write Y-H-W-H so that when people saw it, they would recognize, I'm not allowed to say this name. And so they would often say Adonai, which is the way of saying the sovereign Lord. And so they would know they were talking about him without saying his name that they were unqualified to say. In fact, today to this very day, if you went to Israel and you met Orthodox Jews and they were talking about God, they wouldn't say Yahweh or they wouldn't say God. They would say Hashem, which means the name. The way you and I say, praise God or bless God, praise be to God, they say, Baruch Hashem, bless the name. So holy is this God that they deem his name too good for their lips, too good for their pens. I'm sorry, I'm just feeling a little moved right now. R.A. Cole goes on to say this. He says, secondly, the name is clearly represented as being explicable only by God himself. The theological implication of this is that none but God can explain what God is like. We shall learn the meaning of his name from what he says and what he does. God being so holy, so other, so different, so vast, that he's not willing to give a name. And you think about the Old Testament and even today. Names had meaning. Jacob was called Jacob, meaning deceiver. Esau called Esau, meaning red, because he was covered with red hair and wanted red stew. Names had meaning. Stephen means the crowned one. Feeling pretty special. My middle name, Nathaniel, the gift of God. My last name, Maris, means running waters. Way less cool. God recognizing that character and nature are defined in a name says, I am who I am. And if you want to understand my name or who I am, you will learn more about who I am by watching what I say and what I do. And so as we go through scripture and we see the acts of God, we see the declarations of God, he is showing us his name, meaning he's teaching us his character, his nature, who he is, revealing his attributes to us because God is too holy, too great to be captured in Stephen, in a name so simple. In fact, he would go on one more time to say, more and more, God's nature is gradually being shown to men by his words and acts. His name, I love this, is continually taking on a richer meaning. So as we go through scripture, as we continue to read through the Bible, and we see God say, for I am a merciful God. And we think about mercy in our own capacity to be merciful, where there's been times where someone has wronged us, and we choose to be merciful and forgive them for the ways that they've wronged us. And in those moments, we're merciful, but there's times when we're not merciful. And God is saying, I, that, that is part of who I am. 
We could go to the New Testament, 1 John, where it says God is love, and we see love is who God is. We can see his righteousness, his justice, his long-suffering, patience, all the attributes that we see and learn about God all come together to make him holy, unlike anyone and anything else, so much so that a name just can't do it. So he says, you want to know? I am who I am. And you will tell them that I am has sent you. Let's flip into the New Testament. I want to look at an excerpt from the life of Jesus in John chapter 8. In this passage, Jesus is doing (laughs) what Jesus tends to do, ticking off uh, these Pharisees and super religious people that think that they're special and they don't like Jesus because he's threatening their power and their, their reputation. And Jesus just forgives the woman who's caught in adultery. Because of that, they're mad at him. He's healing people. And because of that, they're mad at him because it shows that he has power and authority that they don't have. And John chapter 8, I have a short passage up here, but I'm actually going to read more than that. I'm going to start in verse 48. It says, the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father. And you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Well, the Jews said to him, now now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? They're saying, who do you think you are? Even Moses died. Even the prophets died. But you're saying if people keep your word, they're not going to die? Who do you think you are? Verse 54, Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. Lip service is what he's pointing out. Verse 55, but you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him. And I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You're not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Who was here thousands of years ago is what they're implying. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. How did they react to that? So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now, Why do they want to stone him? Is it because he's implying that he existed before Abraham? No, they're trying to stone him because of the phrase, the exact phrase he said. Because if he wanted to say before Abraham was, I was, there's a specific Greek phrase he would have said. He could have easily said before Abraham existed, I existed. But he chose to say before Abraham was, I am. They recognized he was identifying himself with the God who spoke to, a- or to Moses in the bush. The great 
I am. And they go, they go blasphemy. They, they, he's, saying, he's saying he's God. Yes. Jesus is declaring to them that day in that moment, before Abraham existed, I am. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am God in the flesh. I am not just another prophet or some good moral teacher or a rabbi. He's saying to them, I'm God. And because of that, they want to kill him. This is just one more reason they want to kill him. And they pick up their stones and he flees and he goes and hides in the temple. And in this same book of John, the evangelist John gives seven other mentions where Jesus said, I am. He would say, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Jesus is the eternally, pre-eternally existent God, eternally existent with the Father and with the Holy Spirit before even let there be light came to pass. In fact, if we look in Colossians chapter one, verse 15, Paul said this, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him, by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things, things hold together this world this universe right now your body is being held together by I am 18 and he is the head of the body the church he is the beginning the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent I love that word preeminent meaning nothing higher nothing greater Jesus Christ the great I am. We can see this echoed in the opening chapters of Hebrews. We can see this echoed in Romans chapter 11, where it says, for by him and through him and to him are all things, and all things exist for his glory. And we can go, indescribable, uncontainable. Indescribable, yes. Uncontainable, Yes. And God help us with how casually we treat the holy God. Jesus Christ, Lord of all creation. So holy that this God cannot have fellowship with sin. Cannot will not, yet so gracious, so merciful, so loving, so kind, so patient, so forgiving that he looks at unholy beings who rejected him and rebelled against him and refused him and became thieves of God's glory, whereby he said, I will not share my glory with another. In fact, this nation of Israel who would also rebel, who would also sin and drift and stray and fall away, 
There's several times in the Old Testament where he says, you're a stubborn, stiff-necked people. But for my name's sake, I will bring you back. God loves us, forgives us, welcomes us. Doesn't keep us at arm's length, but he says, come near. Why? For his name's sake. Because when he looks at the unholy, filthy, nasty sinners that we are, and not only does he see that and forgive it, but sends his son Jesus to pay the price for that sin so that these unholy fallen creatures could be reconciled to him and have fellowship with the holy God of the universe. That the response would not be indescribable, uncontainable. You place the stars in the sky. But it would be lives fully devoted to this God. That we don't tread lightly with him. That we don't treat his grace as a common thing. That we don't look at his holiness and go, no big deal. But we look at his holiness and go, oh no. Like Isaiah, like Moses, like Peter, like John, like so many throughout Scripture who recognize they're in the presence of God and go, oh no. But every time, every single time, when Moses turns away in fear, when Isaiah says, woe is me, when Peter says, get away from me, when the disciples are going, get away from me, who is this man? What was the renowned phrase? Fear not, fear not, fear not, fear not. This all-powerful God who could blink and make us cease to exist has made way for us to come back to him through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. And all he requires of us is that we would believe in Jesus Christ as the Savior And that because of that, we would repent from sin. This doesn't mean we're perfect. None of us are. And we will be made perfect when we are with him in eternity. But we strive for holiness. We seek to get closer to him. And we don't see those things as something like, oh, I can't do the things I want to do. No, we recognize those are things that are keeping me from getting closer to the holy God of the universe. So get off. We sit here and go, oh, but I don't, but I love that show, or I love that movie, or I love that activity, or I love that thing. The holy God of the universe is saying, come here. Come here, child. What is that stuff? This is why Paul in Philippians said, I count those things as garbage, as rubbish, as dog dung, that I might gain Christ and be known by him and share in his sufferings. All those things that once mattered to me, I count as garbage. God, you are holy. God, your name does not even, (laughs) our our lips do not deserve the ability to, to bear your name. 
You are so other. You are so different. You are so magnificent, so powerful, so beautiful, so wonderful, so glorious, so good, so loving, so kind, so powerful, so wrathful, so merciful, so forgiving. Lord, I just think about Psalms where your word says that great is the Lord and greatly to be praised that your greatness is unsearchable. And God, what a humbling and beautiful and wonderful thing that you, being who you are, have made way for us to come back to you. This is the gospel. This is the good news that you have welcomed us back, unholy people, to become holy by what you did and by what you accomplished. God, I ask today by your Holy Spirit, if there's anyone in this room or in the commons or watching online, who has not seen you for who you are, God, I ask by your Holy Spirit that you would open their eyes to understand who you are, to see you and to know that you are real, to believe in you and to repent of their sins and be filled and transformed by the Holy Spirit and to long and hunger and desire for you. Change us, God. Let us long for holiness. Let us see these weights as what they are that we would cast them off to run our race well, to pursue the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. For the glory of your name, for your name's sake, the name of Jesus. Amen.